Section 13 of the Watergate Report, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Dennison, Portland, Maine. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 2. Chapter 4, Campaign Financing, Part 13. Section 7, Corporate-Oriented Solicitation. The Finance Committee to re-elect the President engaged in systematic solicitation of campaign contributions from corporate executives and middle management salaried employees. It engaged in this solicitation through principally two programs. First, what was varyingly called the Corporate Conduit Program, or the Corporate Group Solicitation Program, here and after referred to as CGSP, whose purpose was, according to the persons in charge of it, FCRP, Vice Chairman Newell P. Weed, Jr., and Harold B. Scott, to generate substantial funds by encouraging individual corporations to stimulate their employees to contribute. The rationale behind the idea was that individual companies could more effectively reach principal top management and middle management personnel than was possible by traditional fundraising programs. CGSP was first conceived in March 1972, but it was not until June that the structure of the program was set and it was put to operation. The program ultimately reached executives from 1,893 corporations and included two major mailings to corporate executives. The second major element was the industry-by-industry industry campaign headed by Buckley M. Byers, which concentrated on 60 major industries and involved some duplication of the Weed-Scott effort. A third solicitation method approved, but not stressed by FCRP, involved organized employee good government committees. Part A, the Corporate Conduit Program. Number 1, the Plan. There were two important features to this program. First, the CGSP was aimed at companies and certain groups of people within companies who would most likely contribute to the Republican candidate for president, including top management and middle management levels. With this expectation in mind, it was decided to send a bipartisan appeal to this select group for funds and expect a large return in favor of the FCRP. Moreover, in some cases, the program was implemented in a firm on an outwardly bipartisan basis with the implicit understanding that the chief executive would work toward a result heavily weighted in favor of the president. Thus, the December Weed-Scott report, apparently directed to Stans, stated, Our target was to develop a large number of smaller gifts rather than major gifts from a few donors. The law of numbers would make this program successful, as it does the implant solicitations now conducted by most corporations for United Fund and other charitable organizations. A typical corporate goal would be to solicit a group of 500 employees and receive an 80% response with an average gift of $100, which would provide a combined donation of $40,000. A continuing base of only 500 firms nationwide with this average result would produce a national total of $20 million, and this is a most practical goal if organized properly over the next few years. 
The second important aspect of the CSP was that it was so constructed as to circumvent the necessity of an individual company having to file disclosure forms as a political committee under the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971, FECA, by having the checks made out directly to the candidate, but mailed to FCRP together. Following this procedure, there would be no public record of contributions classified by the company of the donor while there would be such a record at FCRP. An informal opinion by the Department of Justice issued on September 15, 1972, although late in the campaign, gave credence to the FCRP viewpoint that CSP was legal. The opinion made two significant points regarding corporate investment in political campaigns. A. Bonafide bipartisan corporate solicitation programs, even where the corporation is a defense contractor, are legal under Sections 610 and 611 of Title 18, United States Code. B. Under a conduit system, whereby the employee is making his contribution directly to a candidate or committee of the candidate, even though utilizing a middleman, instead of to a corporate fund or officer, a corporation's participation is not such as to require it to register as a political committee. Part 2. The Execution of the Plan Originally begun with the Fortune 500, this list was expanded to 1,000 and ultimately 1,893 corporations, which included the Fortune 1,000 plus top insurance companies, financial institutions, and service companies. These companies constituted the Blue Ribbon List. Developed during the summer of 1972, the program generated a total of $2,791,134, according to Weed and Scott. In an interview by committee staff, Harold Scott provided to the committee a description of the operational mechanics of the Weed-Scott program. The country was divided into two, then further divided into regions, each region having a director. The regional directors were usually prestigious businessmen from the area. An organizational meeting was called in the region with the administration figure as speaker. At the meeting attended by corporate business leaders from the region, Scott or Weed would explain the corporate group solicitation program, and after the explanation, they would then distribute a conduit system kit describing the program. Personal contact was relied upon heavily. It appears that problems developed because the internal conflict over the partisan versus bipartisan approach and the idea of maximizing recognition, since central to the approach was the emphasis on associating the contribution with the corporation of the contributors, and FCRP stressed the importance of contributors receiving recognition for their contributions. In a letter mailed to over 150,000 corporate officers, Maurice Stans stated, Our committee's records of the combined contributions from you and your associates will maximize recognition of your group's support of the president. One of the selling points of the conduit system was that corporate executives could legally contribute in what in the aggregate constituted a large contribution, and the aggregate contribution from the company would not go unnoticed. As noted in an untitled memorandum prepared in December 1972 by Weed and Scott, which appears to have been intended for Stans, 
the question of the concept, partisan versus bipartisan, was discussed. Related to the legal questions discussed below, this issue plagued the corporate conduit program from the beginning. The program was conceived by a partisan group, and its design naturally included heavy overtones of partisanship. It soon became apparent, however, that chief executives who might themselves be solidly in the Republican ranks were often hesitant to make a partisan approach to employees. Many employers flatly refused to do anything which had any overtones of pressuring the employees in an area outside the firm's principal activities. In addition, the law, Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971, left some doubt as to the conditions under which a firm could legally engage in partisan and or bipartisan political activities, and also questions about the extent of activities allowed. As a result, the program was prompted on both partisan and bipartisan basis. In instances where a partisan approach was untenable, the bipartisan was trotted out. In some cases, the program was implemented in a firm on an outwardly bipartisan basis, with the implicit understanding that the chief executive would work toward a result heavily weighted in favor of the president. In other cases, the roster of employees approached was restricted to the management group and other white-collar workers in hopes well-founded, as it turned out, that this group would be largely predisposed in favor of the president. Apparently, typical of the objections raised by some businessmen was a letter dated July 14, 1972, to Stans from the president of a New Jersey company. After noting that he, quote, strongly supported the policies of President Nixon, unquote, the writer continued, I think this is a most unfortunate approach to the solicitation of contributions. I would strongly object to any pressure, no matter how subtle, imposed upon me by our corporate officers, as I would expect the people in my division to object to any pressures exerted by me. In addition, your reference to the use of committee records on organization contributions to maximize recognition of support appears to substantiate the democratic charge of recognition of special interest groups. This certainly highlights the opportunities of the oil interests, as an example, to make a substantial contribution in order to buy further administration support for unfair oil depletion allowances, which are eventually paid for by the taxpayer. Frankly, my feeling is that your approach is going to have a negative rather than a positive effect on the overall support of President Nixon and his forthcoming campaign. FCRP aide Robert L. Cratley responded, Former Secretary Stans has asked that I reply to your letter, which objects to the solicitation of contributions from employees of companies. The program being utilized by this committee is similar to programs used within many of the major corporations in this country. That is an employee-directed system of political fundraising. We believe that the chief executive of a company should have the option to conduct a fundraising campaign as he sees fit, but we do provide him with the option of making each gift totally anonymous and thereby affording complete protection to the employees. Despite this position, which stressed the availability of anonymous contributions, the post-campaign Weed-Scott report advised the abolition of this procedure. In a section under Solicitation Materials, Problem Areas, and Recommendations, 
the report states. A key problem was the reference to our first set of materials on the How to Do It card that suggested the double envelope system used to return the contributions if privacy was desired. It became apparent that employees returning a contribution to their CEO or other senior officer would respond far better in terms of dollar amount of the gift if they did not use the anonymity of the sealed double envelope system. Comparative results by those corporations using the double envelope and those that did not make it extremely clear that the latter method should be used. Our how-to-do-it card and our suggested procedures were changed in the latter part of the campaign to eliminate any reference to the double envelope system. It is not a requirement of the law that this anonymity or privacy be maintained, and as all gifts are a matter of public record anyhow, with the disclosure provisions of the new law, it is strongly recommended that in the future the conduit system include this change in emphasis. Part 3. CGSP Direct Mail Program The success of the CGSP Blue Ribbon Solicitation Program may be contrasted with a direct mail solicitation to businessmen. The direct mail solicitation letter was drafted by Maurice Stans and mailed on about July 4, 1972, to approximately 150,000 businessmen listed in Dun & Bradstreet. The letter was followed up by calls and another letter. According to FCRP, confirmed with the direct mail concern that sent out the solicitations, only $14,000 was profited from the direct mail campaign, which cost $53,000. Approximately 200 companies constituted conduit programs as a result of the direct mail effort, and about $25,000 was received from these 20 companies. So at most, this first mailing raised $39,000. A second direct mail letter was sent in late August and early September to 35,000 firms listed in Dun & Bradstreet. This letter was a higher quality piece than the first, and as a result, a larger percentage of firms agreed to institute a conduit system than those in the first mailing. The cost of this mailing was $21,000, with only about 600 actual respondents. The direct mail results were not as expected. The response from the money-in-the-envelope response was negligible, about 1% according to FCRP. In fact, the conclusions of FCRP about the direct mail effort reveal its limitations as a fundraising technique. The Weed-Scott report concluded that the direct mail portion of the corporate conduit program's effort was not effective by any standards. In fact, FCRP concluded that, quote, no direct mail should be sent to major potential contributors, including all officers of the 2,000 largest corporations. While it was recognized that this would entail considerable effort, it was concluded that the cost is not excessive in terms of potential benefit. Thus, it was concluded that it was worth considerable time, effort, and money not to send mailings to these corporate officers. Part B. Industry by Industry Program the industry-by-industry industry solicitation program provided double coverage of most of the corporations covered by the Weed-Scott program and the individual FCRP state chairman. However, this duplication was acknowledged as a means to ensure a good return from solicitation 
under the Total Corporate Solicitation Program. The logic of the program was summarized by Buckley M. Byers, Director of the Industry by Industry Effort, in an October 23, 1972 memorandum to Stans. In some 60 industries, we have had a leader in each industry who personally knows his counterparts, who are the chief executive officers in that industry. He also knows what the specific problems of the industry are, what President Nixon has done to help his industry, and also what the alternatives would be for the industry. In his memorandum to Stans on November 27, 1972, reviewing the performance of the industry efforts, Byers would usually begin with a statement on the effectiveness of the coordination of the industry. Comments such as that a coordinator did not perform to expectations or was a disappointment after considerable optimistic talk were balanced by evaluations that a coordinator did a first-class job. Some who seemingly put forth their best efforts apparently were simply the wrong person for the job. Buyers felt that the coordinator should be from an individual company and not from a related trade association. Although on occasion industry coordinators instructed their respective industry counterparts to send their contributions directly to FCRP, Byers wanted the individual coordinator to receive the do donations first so that an accounting of the total industry's contribution would be readily available. This report described the home builders industry, which raised $334,059, as productive and well-organized. Twenty days after the election, Byers stated that this group, in my opinion, could still be pressured into giving some more if absolutely necessary. No further contact was made, according to the industry chairman, who told the committee staff that there never was any pressure exerted on him or the industry to contribute. The organization of the agribusiness industries suggests the comprehensiveness of the industry-by-industry industry program. Within this general industrial classification were dozens of different types of businesses and concerns, each with a sub-chairman. For instance, the Agribusiness Committee not only included soybean and beef production, but also farm implement dealers, florists, cottonseed crushers, and, according to the FCRP, industry-by-industry industry files, 35 other sub-classifications. The November 27, 1972 Byers Report attributes contributions of $209,457 to the agribusiness industry. Although the industry-by-industry industry program started relatively late in the campaign, the program appears to have generated at least $7 million in contributions, according to Byers' preliminary final report, which he conceded required updating. The largest industry contributors, according to Byers' November 27, 1972 report, were pharmaceutical, $885,000, petroleum products, $809,600, investment banking, $690,812, Trucking, $674,504. Textile, $600,000. Carpet, $375,000. Automobile manufacturers, $353,900. Home builders, $334,059. And insurance, $319,000. 
It appears from memorandums obtained from FCRP files that some corporate officers, especially those whose company's business heavily rely on government contracts, balked at the idea of the industry being the contribution spotlight and not the company. Thus, a memorandum from Buckley Byers dated July 17, 1972, re the aerospace industry states, Vern told me in no uncertain terms that such an effort would not be successful in this industry. The reason being that they are so heavily dependent on government contracts that individuals in any one of the top seven companies would want a representative of any of the other companies to get credit for raising this kind of money. A July 26, 1972 buyer's memorandum raised the same problem in the case of the airline industry, pointing out that one industry figure noted that all of the airlines are exceptionally jealous of each other. Apparently, the industry-by-industry industry program sought to acquaint itself with the problems of the solicited industries. While the committee has developed no specific evidence that the FCRP industry-by-industry industry program influenced government action, it apparently reviewed industry problems and forwarded the industry's concern to the interested officials. Byer's November 27, 1972 memorandum summarizes his views. We have a good nucleus of people to work with now, and we must keep most of them actively involved. In this connection, I would recommend that many of our industry chairmen be asked to serve as appointed members of the Republican National Finance Committee. We are also going to have to do what we can to help our industry chairmen with the problems of their industry and see to it that they get proper attention from the administration. Only in this way will they become convinced that our relationship is not a one-way street. Another buyer's memorandum regarding non-ferrous metals noted that there would be absolutely no question about FCRP's choice accepting and doing an outstanding job if we could give some reasonable assurance that we would render whatever assistance possible to the industry. There is no evidence that any efforts were made on behalf of the industry by FCRP, though the industry was credited with $55,600 by buyers. Byers' view of the potential of the program was summarized in his October 23, 1972 memorandum to Stans. While there was an industry-by-industry industry effort in 1968, it was admittedly too little and too late. The effort this year could also have been far more successful had it been in effect much earlier. Now that we have a reasonably good organizational nucleus, I would urge that it be kept alive, strengthened, and enlarged. Such an effort could be invaluable in the senatorial and congressional races in 1974, as well as in any special election that might come up in the meantime. If it is continued, it could be, in my opinion, proved to be the answer in 1976. Part C. Separate Segregated Funds. Corporate Good Government Committees. The Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971 permitted a corporation to provide for the establishment, administration, and solicitation of contributions to a separate segregated fund, commonly named Good Government Committees, to be utilized for political purposes. The corporation need ensure only that the money was not obtained through force or threat of employment reprisals or in any commercial transaction. 
The provision in the 1971 Act for a Separate Fund basically codifies the decision of the Supreme Court in Pipefitters Local 562 versus United States, 407 U.S. 385, 1972. There, the court sanctioned the common practice of separate funds for political purposes set up by labor unions and, by analogy, corporations governed by the older Corrupt Practices Act, so long as the persons contributing to the fund were fully aware that their contributions were voluntary. It is in this area of voluntary funding that the 1971 Campaign Act may be unclear and possibly subject to abuse. The Act specifies that the use or threat of physical force, job discrimination, or financial reprisals will render a contribution involuntary, and the Supreme Court has said that under the previous legislation, contributors had to be aware that their donations were strictly voluntary. One area of potential abuse is the situation where the employer, perhaps through another high-echelon corporate officer, asks his employees to participate in a good government committee by making donations. In this situation, it is more difficult to differentiate between coercion and implied pressure, on the one hand, and a legitimate appeal asking for involvement in a citizenship program, on the other. Unions effectively utilized separate segregated political funds by raising substantial amounts of money from their membership, most of which went to Democratic candidates for president. However, corporate-related segregated political committees though not as commonly known to the public as a union, also provide a substantial percentage of contributions to campaigns. From reports filed with the Clerk of the House and the GAO, it appears that hundreds of thousands of dollars went to the committee to re-elect the president prior to the April 7 deadline in 1972. Post-April 7, according to GAO records, five corporate-related committees reported that $138,556 went to the Finance Committee to re-elect the President from the same committees. $20,650 went to Senator McGovern's campaign, and $650 went to one other Democratic candidate for President. Many corporations already had in existence corporate good government committees prior to the advent of the 1972 presidential campaign and readily utilized them for the campaign. Some of these corporations ended their good government committees just prior to April 7, 1972, because of the legal uncertainties arising from the questions of interpreting Sections 610 and 611 of Title 18 United States Code. And still, other companies instituted new segregated political committees following the guidelines of the new law. Concern existed not only over the legality of good government committees, but over appearances. Although making use of these committees was part of the 1972 presidential campaign effort by FCRP, they were aware of possible criticism. Thus, a February 28, 1972 memorandum from White House consultant Jack A. Gleason to David Wilson, assistant to John Dean, noted under the heading Public Relations that Historically, virtually all corporate political structures have been subjected to illogical criticism by the press for their activities. Further, their activities have not been especially useful or effective. Gleason's plan to make the committees more useful and effective appears in the memo's next paragraph. Whatever Section 610 permits, 
any major corporation making a, a major effort by itself will be subjected to additional press criticism. The only way I can see to offset this possibility is to establish a committee of prominent businessmen to see that their corporations and others that they approach jointly announce that these corporations, say a hypothetical minimum of 30 major corporations, have chosen to exercise their responsibility to good government by establishing a 610 committee as provided for under the new law. Such a leadership committee can be stacked with pro-Nixon men, but should also include a creep or two like J. Irwin Miller to avoid any blatant pro-Nixon appearance. Additionally, such a committee should be made up principally of five or six real clout businessmen who can pass as reasonably nonpartisan and must be prepared to devote a considerable amount of time to the project. The committee investigated a number of corporate good government committees and found two companies which had programs that warrant presentation, Gold Incorporated and Tennessee Eastman Company. 1. Gold Incorporated Gold Incorporated, a large government contractor which has a multi-year contract to manufacture torpedo parts, started Better Government Association, BGA, in 1969 as an outgrowth of the Gould Incorporation's philosophy of taking an active part in politics. The fund was divided into two types of employees, the salaried exempt and the salaried non-exempt. The salaried exempt employees were the 100 senior officers of the corporation. In 1972 and 1973, approximately 90 officers contributed to the fund. From the 5,000 salaried non-exempt employees solicited in the same time period, approximately 350 contributed to the fund. Employees were theoretically able to specify to the recipients of their individual contributions and make suggestions as to who should receive contributions from the discretionary fund, which was the money not allocated by individual contributors. BGA was administered by three officials of Gould Incorporated, William Ilvisaker, President and Chairman of the Board of Gould, Elmore Wyatt, and Roger Morley, two other company officials. In February 1972, Il Visaker was approached at a breakfast in Chicago by Stans, a personal friend of his. Stans stated, according to Il Visaker, that we've got you down for $50,000. After the breakfast, Il Visaker met with Morley and Wyatt to discuss a contribution from BGA. All agreed that $50,000 was an unrealistic figure and decided that $20,000 was more within the ballpark. Since BGA had about 9000 in the BGA account, it was decided that a personal loan to BGA would have to be made. Il Visaker decided to make the loan personally on two conditions. One, that BGA pay the interest on the loan, and two, that he would exert no immediate pressure to be repaid. Thus, on April 3, 1972, Il Visaker went to the National Security Bank of Chicago and secured a note for $20,000 and made the loan to BGA. Only the three above-mentioned officers of Gould Incorporated had knowledge of the loan to BGA and also knowledge of the subsequent contribution to CRP. No one else was told about the contribution until shortly before the election in 1972. 
Not one of the salaried non-exempt employees of Gould Incorporated knew about the contribution until the fact was reported in the newspapers in the fall of 1972. Over a year after the actual contribution was made to CRP, the loan was repaid. The funds to repay Il Fisiker came to BGA as a result of a massive solicitation effort within Gould Incorporated in the spring and summer of 1973, in which Gould employees were solicited for non-allocated contributions. 2. Tennessee Eastman Company The Tennessee Eastman Company, located in Kingsport, Tennessee, maintained a plan. Volunteers for Better Government, VBG, which involved centralized control under three trustees, two corporate officers, and a local lawyer. The payroll deduction authorization was for a deduction of 1% of the employee's gross salary. There was no option on the amount of deduction. The average contribution was about $300 per employee. The VBG organizers were empowered with the right to terminate the payroll deduction at any time they felt that they had enough funds on hand and then reinstate the deductions whenever they wanted more funds without taking the matter up with the individual contributor. There was no option on the part of the participant to designate the candidate of his choice. No reports were made to contributors, and employees were not advised of the identity of the recipients of VBG's contributions. No evidence of coercion was found, although one employee stated that he had participated because he wanted to be a team player. VBG stopped the payroll deductions as of November 1, 1972 and has not reinstated them as of this date. The reason given was that the committee had on hand funds amounting to approximately $28,000, and there was no campaign or candidate to support. The report filed with the Secretary of the Senate reveals that the receipts of VBG for the year 1972 was $30,442.37. The only donation to a presidential campaign in 1972 was $30,000, which was given to FCRP. Cash on hand as of December 1972 amounted to $28,161.89. End of Section 13. Recording by John Dennison. Portland, Maine.